Round one, go. Well, I've I've actually heard that it is better um, to spend time at funerals than to spend time at parties. That's actually in the Bible, Marty. Uh, this is Doug Bassler. And Marty McClendon. I want to know more about funerals versus parties on well, Doug and Marty know, versus the world. You know, it's 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 true though, because you know, when my mom passed away, there was this this moment, you know, when I knew that she was going and that the things of this world became less important than the relationships that we have. Right. And right. so, of course, I'm referring to the passing of the radio great, the pioneer of, you know, this genre of which we are uh, beneficiaries is Rush Limbaugh. And mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it, it was an interesting and it, it, not just an interesting run, <laughs> a miraculous run that he had over 30 years, bro. I mean, radio has only been around for 100 years. Actually, mm-hmm. radio in the United States started in 1920, so 101 years. And for a full third of that time, Rush Limbaugh was number one. That's mm-hmm. pretty impressive. Well, you got to remember the beginning of conservative talk radio it wasn't a thing. Even yeah. through the 60s, it wasn't a thing. Um, they had the news and they had commentators, but to actually have a political uh, viewpoint of the conservative nature actually have popularity. Rush started it. It really was. I mean, even in, in uh, here in the Northwest, KVI started late 60s, early 70s, but it wasn't a conservative show until probably the late 80s, early 90s even. Yeah, so, early 80s, early 90s, a Reagan, yeah. Reagan era stuff. You know, we didn't, uh, you know, before that in the in the before times, we didn't expect uh, Governor George McGovern in 1972, the Democratic candidate who was slaughtered in the election with a landslide, much the same way that Joe Biden was. But that's a different story, um, was going to introduce communism into one of the major political parties. And uh, Solinsky, that's about around the time Solinsky wrote his book, Rules for Radicals and things like that. And so we never th- we, you know, as Americans up until the era of Reagan, we really didn't think that that America would ever be going down this path. And and yet Rush Limbaugh saw, foresaw that. Right. He was dealing with that. I remember the first time I ever listened to Rush Limbaugh was probably, gosh, must have been like eighty nine, ninety, or something like that. I got into radio in 1990 mm-hmm. and, and it was inspirational for me. You know, the guy was, you know, um, he was fighting the battle. And in it and even then they were trying to cancel him. They were trying to Mike Lindell him or whatever, you know, and he never, he never caved. He never gave up his network, you know, became, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, he multi, multi millionaire, right? Millions and millions. At the the highest point, 40 million listeners, daily listeners, thinking about that across this nation, you think 350 million people, 40 million people tuned in daily or five days a week to listen to this guy speak for 30 years. That's pretty impressive. And so he was a force to be reckoned with. And yeah, he had a leading edge. And of course, he had some, you know, went on onto the national stage on ESPN and got kind of went back. And he had people, his naysayers, but uh, for a guy to be in first for that long uh, on doing radio, like you said, he not only pioneered it, but he opened the door for so many people to follow in his footsteps. Um, and, and, you know, I think that the real lesson that I, I think we can learn is that your life can matter. You know, Rush Limbaugh, you know, he did a lot and he, and he didn't he ever compromise, had a backbone. He had courage, told the truth, loved America and never, you know, never gave up. And, 
you know, if any of us, um, you know, again, just back what I started, it's better to spend time at funerals than at parties because at funerals, you, you realize what's important, you know, and as, as I'm getting a little, a little bit older, um, I'm recognizing that I only have a limited time to make a difference. And so, uh, you know, days like this, weeks like this, where, you know, you see a, you know, major cultural icon, you know, and then uh, I don't know if you were around yep. Uh, yep. Christian music in the 90s. Yep, Carmen. There was this guy, yep. Carmen, and he had some pretty interesting, the witch's invitation, the champion and all these different, you know, he was, he was a very courageous kind of guy too. So interesting. As a baby, baby Christian, uh, Bellevue Foursquare, we were doing a mime ministry and we did a mime to um, Carmen's champion. I was exposed to him back then. I mean, and you hear that and you're like, yeah, I mean, just the, the illustration of the fight and then, you know, how the demons are cheering on. And of course, Jesus rises, you know, and he wins. And it's like, it, you know, it was fantastic. Apparently, he still holds the record for the largest Christian concert in history in Houston, Texas. Um, it's two dates still. So, Carmen, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, as we... We have a guest. I know we have guests, but uh, a couple of things that Dan Bongino did a, a top 20 quotes from Rush. You think over 30 years, you'd have a lot more than 20. I'm sure he does. But a couple of these those stood out to me. Liberals always exempt themselves from the rules that they impose on others. We've heard that. We believe that. But if he pioneered that or quoted it, it's uh, true, right? Liberals measure compassion by how many people are given welfare. Conservatives measure compassion by how many people no longer need it. You know, it's just these these comparisons when we have these political um, dialogues, right? Being able to distill these down into, look, this is what we stand for. It's what you stand for. This is why we're fighting against socialism. This is why we're fighting against the takeover of this nation. So it's it's up to us and others behind us to, to keep on the fight, right? Yeah, you know, the thing I, I told my beautiful wife uh, when I heard that, that Rush had passed away is that scripture that Jesus said, except a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. And I think that's one of the things that, that I think would be a, a very amazing legacy, you know, because of Rush Limbaugh, there is a Sean Hannity, there is a Glenn Beck, there is a Tucker Carlson, there's a mm-hmm. Doug Bassler, there's a Marty McClendon, there's, there's an army of conservative voices in the media because of that guy. And so just uh, hats off, salute, you know, God bless you. You know, uh, I heard uh, the quote from uh, uh, Mark Stein is uh, talent returned to God. Uh, yeah. Because Rush used to say talent on loan from God. So, yep. I love it. It gives me a little tear there, brother. I hold hand behind his back, right? Or one yep. part of his back, half his brain tied behind his back. Half yeah. his brain tied behind his back, which is what you need to do with liberals anyway. Otherwise, they uh, can't understand you. You're not speaking slow enough for them. I'm going to quote one more of his it. from this list and look at our guests. Number nine on the list was morality is not defined and cannot be defined by individual choice. And uh, as we just talked about a couple weeks ago about, again, life is front and center. American politics at the national level and the local level as well. It's a fundamental issue of our time. And here it is, you know, uh, we have people battling in the trenches right now in the state, state house and the federal house. So won't you introduce our guest brother? Sure. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to get somebody on the show uh, smart 
uh, as opposed to the two of us. And nice also <laughs> somebody, somebody that actually has some inside scoop on what's going on, I would like to say in Olympia, but in virtual Olympia right now. Oh. And uh, so I called our, our texted our, our dear friend, uh, State Representative Jesse Young from the 26th District, and he graciously agreed to tie half of his brain behind his back and come on the program with us today. So, Jesse Young, how are you today, sir? Well, geez, I'm good now that you just can uh, use one of Russia's uh, comments <laughs> or general statements that always made me laugh to compare me to it. That's cool. I love that guy, man. Uh, I wish I wish that we weren't celebrating his, his passing. Yeah, talent was hurt, return to God. It's a loss for us, though, man. Loss for us. It is a huge loss. And whenever someone like that um, goes home to be with God, it, it, there's no place. To, there's no way to re- replace them. It's what do we do from here? Right. What's the next step? You know, obviously, and it's because you never replaced these legends. What you do is say, okay, now what do we do with this? How do we build upon this in a different way? Because we don't be another rush, but there might be a new somebody else a Joseph or a James or whatever that comes in lead the way. So, um, yeah, it's crazy. A, uh, a scripture in Joshua chapter one, and it says, Moses, my servant is dead. Therefore be strong and courageous. You know, it's like, you know, they, Moses was around for a long time. You know, he, he, he was around for 40 years in the desert and all that stuff. And he was this guy and he would talk to God for us and he'd do all this stuff for us. Right. And, you know, in a, in a large, in a lot of ways, that's president Trump, right? That's uh, that's president Trump. That's um, Rush Limbaugh and others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, after the election uh, was stolen by uh, the current administration, um, <laughs> I felt like that verse coming up, you know, what, we need to be kind of like, uh, you know, they, I know Hydra is the bad guys in the Marvel comics, but you know, you cut off one head and you know, two more. Up, right? right. Right. And it's like, we need to do that. You know, they need, they need 75 million Donald Trump's and 75 million Rush Limbaugh's to, to rise up and have that kind of. I'm glad you brought that up. And I want Jesse to, to comment on this as well. I know we're on a Christian station and, and a Christian network as well, but this has been up in my, in my spirit for the last several weeks. I've been studying, you know, the Exodus and numbers and that kind of stuff. When you think about Joshua, right? Every time it's mentioned for Moses there, Joshua remained in the tent where God was. Wherever Moses met with God, Joshua remained. He was the attendant too. So the entire time he's been prepared to take Moses' place. Right. And you look about it too. You look back on the Old Testament prophet Samuel. Where was he? As a child, he spent his whole time in the presence of God, you know, being mentored and prepared for the time when he took over. And there's something about that. There are a lot of people across this nation, across this state, that have been in the presence of God waiting for a time like this when these people have now gone on to believe the Lord and to be launched. And I just truly believe that. Don't you, Jesse? I do. I have a. Uh long contemplated that I, I kind of, I kind of imagine that anybody that enters into politics and, and sticks around after, um, you know, all of the, after you really learn how, you know, uh, bad it can be, uh, you know, all the ins and outs and pitfalls of it, you start to contemplate anybody that thinks about their future, thinks about these things. And when you see these greats, um, and rush was certainly a great there, there have been others, you know, and, and you marvel at what they've done. Um, 
and anybody that's ever studied history has probably wondered the same thing. What do you do? I know this. I, I have resolved myself to know that I don't have to be them. I just got to be obedient. And um, where I stack up is where I'll stack up. It doesn't matter if, if, can you imagine, think of it this way. What if I tried to be like a rush and that's not what I was called to do? Right. right. What if I was called to do something different, but tried to emulate rush and suppose I even got 99% there just as effective. Maybe it changed my entire paradigm to do that. Maybe I accomplished something similar. And then I stand before my Lord and he says, but that's not what I asked you to do. I would hate that. I would hate to be in that position. So I, I've come back and, and always, regardless of what feelings I might have about what I can do, uh, how effective I can be, um, how do I, how might I stack up? It doesn't matter if you come back and you just re resolve yourself to know that all you got to do is be obedient to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and do what he asks you to do, then you're good. Yeah. Amen. I, I, good. You know, Marty has been saying for years, Joshua 1, 9, I think he even has it tattooed somewhere on his body, mm -hmm. probably on his butt. Um, no. <laughs> oh, it's on your arm there. Okay. I can't see Second. my butt. So, you know, yeah, it's reminding you need me. Some, <laughs> yeah. You know, you in the, in the foot, you don't want to leave butt prints in the sands of life. Yes. Um, you <laughs> get up and move, but, it, but Joshua one is a great, you know, it's just a great chapter, right? I think it's one of your favorites, but he's like in, in verse five, he says, as I was with Moses, so I, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Joshua was not Moses. Joshua was a different guy, had a different, you know, Moses wasn't really called to battle. I mean, even when Moses had battles, Joshua was the general, right? He was the guy down there fighting them, right? Mm -hmm. There was only a few that Moses actually had. So, you know, different anointing for different thing, you know, when you're doing a, a, a you know, a battle stance kind of a thing, that's going to be different than, um, you know, than leading your people out of Egypt or delivering, right, you know, right. that kind of but thing, whatever. To Jesse's point, and to what I was getting at too, is you, you have Joshua who served Moses until his time to lead. You had Samuel serving Eli, uh, Elias and the other priests there until it was his turn to lead. You had Joseph thrown into the pit and then, of course, sold into slavery, serving until it was his turn to leave. I think there's a, there's a, something about that. Being faithful where God's put you right now, uh, doing the honoring everything unto the Lord, and knowing there's a season that you're being prepared for for what's next. I think all too often people try to be someone and they're not, like Jesse was saying. Be who God's called you to be in this season, knowing that when you are faithful to be who you are, God's preparing you for the next season. And who knows what that's going to be? Yeah. You know? so too many people spend their lives trying to be somebody else. You know, let's just, <laughs> why would you want to do that? There's only, you know, I always say, what? Well, how can you tell if something's valuable, right? It's valuable if it's, if it's rare. Okay. So what's more rare than a, than a human being? Each one of us is completely the only one. Right. We're the you're the only Jesse Young there is, you know, you're the only Marty. Uh, I'm the only Doug. Um, and then what is somebody willing to pay for it? And we see God who's willing to give his most prized possession for us, his only begotten son. OK, let's just establish that we're valuable as we are. So why would I want to be somebody else? Why don't I just be me? He paid for me. He wants me to do the thing I do, the thing that I'm wired for or whatever. Such a good observation, Representative Young. I didn't know Amen. you were going to preach, but we need to give the rest of the show to you now. Uh, so a lot's going on. I mean, this, this thing in Olympia, you know, I want to get on this because uh, 
the the fence is still there. I was just down there. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, They told us when uh, Donald Trump was president that walls don't work, but apparently, (laughs) apparently they work great down there. Have you been to Olympia or are you just uh, phoning it in? As they say, I have not been allowed to go back down except for the first day. So here's a state representative representing his district, but has an office down there, but he's not allowed to go to his office, not allowed to stay in Olympia. Come on, people. You know, this is so who's is that who's really the case? Power? not allowed to go. They, even they to have office? they have uh, adopted temporary rules that apparently are going to be permanent because we're not adopting regular rules. Apparently, uh, maybe they'll come up and change that, but. Um, I objected to those rules uh, on the first day. They needed to have us all down there in person on the first days because they didn't have rules in place that would allow us to be remote. And I don't think the temporary rules are legal. I think the whole, uh, the, the summation of everything that we, we do down in Olympia during the session is uh, potentially subject to a judicial review and could potentially be thrown out because it's not legal. Um, they've so, but they adopted these temporary rules to give them some form of cover to say that it's okay to be remote. And in those rules, what they did was they said, well, we're going to allow for some members that we believe either a have a designated need or we just believe. And of course we, they define as the leadership, um, are, are blessed enough to be allowed to be down there. <clears throat> and even at that, they're not allowed to be on the floor. They got to do their stuff from their office, what have you. But I was not chosen to be one of them. I kind of look at that as a slight to my district because that means my district isn't fully represented. And yeah. when I, if, you know, if I'm on a Zoom session and they have me muted by default, um, that is not honoring the constitutional uh a clause around equal representation because some members are muted, some members are not. So what if the speaker makes a motion from the floor I don't agree with? I don't think my constituents would agree with. I'm not allowed, I can't even make that motion. And why do others get to be down there and I don't? It, it's a farce it, and it's, it's, it's sad. And of course uh, it's allowing for the fences to stay up longer, even though they're not needed. They were, well, let's just be clear. They were never needed. Right. And um advocating for your district and for the state now typically part of your stuff been being down there you're building relationship you're talking to people you're trying to win people over to your side to be to add on to your bills and so forth Uh, is that all gone now or does that all just make it a bit more difficult no it makes it more difficult for sure you got to be able to get a hold of somebody via phone um at least it's not just completely audio um you can kind of see see the person through zoom a little bit, but, and, and so at least if you got that visual aspect, you can maybe see if I'm wincing when I'm saying something, so you can pick up the nonverbal cue that goes with what I just verbally said, but it's still diminished. Right. And the ability to be more nimble. Look, if I needed to, I reached out to another legislator today. I know the legislator had a busy schedule and um, I'm hoping that that legislator will call me back. And it's on an issue that is important to me, but also important to this this legislator. Um, if I were in Olympia, I'd go and stand in front of his office. I just right. wait for him to get back. Right. And and you know, I would or I'd have a staffer go do it and tell me when he's when he's there. And then I'd run over there real quick and be like, "Look, hey, I'm popping my head, and you might be a little ticked that I'm busted in, but I just need two seconds of your time. It's worth it. Boom, we get something done, and then we're down the road. Can't do that now. 
And so now his district is potentially uh, not as well off because um, we got to hope that somehow after he's done, he sees a text, is able to remember that text when he has an opening convenient to respond to the text or call me. All of that stuff is diminished and it hurts representation for people. And But that's that's not the problem. That's not the problem. The problem I have is that some people are forced to ha- operate with that crutch and others are not. And that's and because I've sworn an oath to the Constitution, that's what I objected to on day one and what I still object to now and what I think our courts will rule against if the session is sued um, for uh, legalities, because some members were allowed to operate without that crutch and therefore their citizens had greater representation than my district citizens. And uh, I think that's a I think that's a big problem. And, uh, you know, I try to I try my best to um, uh, legislate with regard to precedent and real uh, constitutional consideration so that everybody's rights are still maintained, whether I get my result or not. Now, being in the minority is always tough as it is the committee assignments, uh, the house and the Senate, and of course you're in a minority on there. This would be like a double, um, it makes it even more harder, right? I mean, it's, you're trying to, um, defend, you know, um, my rights or the community's rights, the state's rights as well. Same time you have being steamrolled in most cases by some of these crazy bills. I, I testified the other day in finance against the capital gains tax. Uh, are you having some success, uh, uh, slowing down. <laughs> See, you get to witness what uh, I think you came on after Kashama Sawan, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. No, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and oh see, here, here's a funny point, right? Even she was ticked off. She, she got cut off by the Democrat chair because she felt like her First Amendment rights were being infringed. That was just hilarious. <sighs> oh my gosh. Um, Oh, and she's the first one that wants to get rid of the first amendment, but while it's here, it, it, oh, yeah, what was that, what yeah, was that quote that, what was the quote that uh, Marty started with? Uh, the uh, liberals never, uh, they're exempt from the rules they want for everybody else or whatever. Right. 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 Something like that. Free pass on hypocrisy. What's, I mean, her, her level of hypocrisy is exceeded only by AOC and a few of those others at the national level. Yeah. She's a, she's a one in a million. I got to tell you. Um, Yes. Well, it, they want it, you to think they're the majority, bro, and uh, and they're not. Yeah, and, no. um, so now the the the, the whole COVID, you know, scam, you know, next, I mean, next to the stealing of the election, the COVID thing, um, and then of course three is known, um, you know, uh, child sex predator, uh, Chris Reichdahl. Um, you know, th- these are the these are the things that are concerning me, but. This uh, this COVID uh, emergency thing has to be signed off on by our minority leaders in both the Senate and the House. And they've both signed off on this kind of indefinite sort of, you know, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the two week lockdown to flatten the curve. So um, what do you see any is there any glimmer of sunshine there at all? I mean, we've moved into phase two point. Oh, I don't know. Sorry to bust your bubble, but that's no longer the case. Uh, One of the first things the Democrats did when we got down the session was they passed a binding resolution that uh, uh, just extended the governor's proclamations until he's done with the emergency. So now our minority leaders don't even. Now, the way that the rule worked that you were citing correctly, which was that the minority leaders had an opportunity to um, 
uh, bless or, you know, condone the, the actions after every, every 30 days. But that's only when we weren't in session. When we're in session, the governor, it's not the minority leader's prerogative to do that. The entire body gets to vote. And it has to be a vote. But what they did was they just preempted that since we we're going to be in session until the end of April. They uh, they just went in, went ahead and said, no, we're just going to extend it. And they passed a, a party line vote to just give the governor car blanc. And uh, that's that's really unfortunate. So the governor has no impetus whatsoever to do anything other than what he wants to. And I can't believe uh, that the Democrats were willing to give that to him. Uh, given that they're in such a majority they, right they now. Know they know that he's still... mentally, you know, deficient, right? They they understand that he's not playing with a full deck of 52 cards. Isn't that correct? I mean, don't they well, know that? Isn't it more political cover? I mean, if they, if he takes the blame for it, he'll be out of the office, whatever. <laughs> they don't have to take blame for it. They, he can do what they want him to do to an extent. Well, you know, I, I kind of get a little conspiratorial myself sometimes, and I half wonder if this just wasn't a play to – allow the governor the ability to get out of Dodge and take a Biden appointment someplace and then let the new governor come in and not have to worry about the COVID stuff. And then the new governor, because he doesn't have to negotiate with us, can then be the one that opens the economy back up and starts with a new hurrah moment. Um, that would but be Biden, Biden for all of his mental deficiencies, which are many, um, has also recognized the mental deficiencies of a certain uh, Jay Inslee. So, an appointment to the Biden administration seems somewhat far-fetched at this point. Now, clearly, though, Susie Levine gets promoted to the Biden administration. Oh, well, she's brilliant. She's learned how to fund millions of dollars to, to you know, people in the, Nigeria. Come on. Well, they're not Nigerians. They're Washingtonians. They're supporters. They're, you know, come on. The uh, Look, there is a lot of pressure on the governor from the ground up to, to move on out. Him running for governor again stalled a lot of their members out that you can clearly see through financial filings with the public disclosure committee um, that uh, or commission that uh, there are at least three or four people that are all angling to run for governor from the Democrat side. And they're all kind of, you know, plugged up until he moves. So I think that uh, even if Biden didn't want Inslee, other people might convince Biden to give Inslee so they can move on up and, and do their thing. Um, but if he has to stay for another four years, oh, my gosh, um, hopefully we can keep it together on the Republican side and put some real good professional conservatives out there that we can take everything back in the House and and then bump him out. I just, uh, you know, I don't know with, with what Jamie Herrera Butler did and Dan mm-hmm. Newhouse did their betrayal to their to the people, their betrayal to due process, their betrayal to uh, their constitutional oath, which they continue to stand behind, you know, uh, friendly media um, and say that they were doing what they thought. No, they weren't. I have never, I've never so, I've been, never been more ashamed than, uh, of a, a, a Republican than Jamie Herrera Butler, who, who comes out and says that she's standing up for due process when she convicted the president on hearsay. It just, uh, or, you know, uh, you know, I was attempting to convict him on hearsay. It just, I'm like, man, I, I hope the people in her district realize that she'll throw them under the bus just as quick as she did Donald Trump, but no longer serves her political career. And that that's the only way that we don't get back into offices if our party keeps uh, it doesn't clean that crap up. And uh, unfortunately, that seems to be a fight. It's one of the, one of the main reasons I keep telling people don't quit, become PCOs, you know, get become PCOs. PCOs have the real power. And, um, you know, the leadership is elected by PCOs. So become a PCO. 
you know, there's this broader notion in the political circles of, you know, compromise or, you know, we can't be rigid to ideology is I'm really sick and tired of the, 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 the mainstream push behind this that says the, the, they will say, well, we can't, you can't just expect everybody to support your platform. We got we to gotta fall back to what Ronald Reagan told us. And Ronald Reagan said this 80-20 rule. And if someone agrees with you 80% of the time, you don't throw them away for 20% of the time. It's so insidious. Let's just be very clear. Mm-hmm. That, there's a bait and switch in that argument that they're not acknowledging. The bait and switch is they're trying to convince you to believe up front that somehow a party platform is a rigid ideology from the right. It's not. A party platform is voted on by all the PCOs you just mentioned, Doug. It is a compromise. The party platform that the Republican Party stands for is a compromise that is vetted through the lenses of the entire Republican political spectrum. And then it's voted upon and it's agreed to. And that's done at a county level. Then the county levels themselves roll that up to the state level. I know both of you are familiar with this. And then the state party platform is agreed to. And so at that point in time, if you tell me that we have a quote unquote Republican running that doesn't support our platform and they say that, well, no, you have to learn to agree with some other people and don't be so rigid. I say that's fool's gold. That's what that is. No, the platform is a compromise. And if they're not agreeing to that, then they're not Republican, period. And don't say that that's rigid. It's a lie to do that. And and it's insidious to try to deceive people that way who are just generally good natured and don't want to see conflict. And compromise never goes to the right. (laughs) Compromise never goes to, well, why don't we just stop abortion after like three months? Right. Why why don't we just, why don't we just, uh, you know, make sure that whatever, you know, that, that heroin stays illegal. We've been told for years. Let's just at least do that. uh, Told for years from the mainstream Republicans, the the, big tent, right? We need to move towards and be more appealing. Well, no, we can't sacrifice our values. If we don't stand for something, right, we'll fall for anything. That's what we've been doing. We've been watered down. We don't know what we stand for. Look, the other side's rigid, right? They're rigid. That's what you're saying. So we see the self-sabotage inside our own party. Uh, at the local, the state, and the national level, where uh, if you stand on principle, when people turn out for you, whether it be Trump or whether it be conservatives here in the state, and then you have people attacking you from, from your right or from the party, and to, to Jesse's point, that that's got to stop. Uh, you know, one of the things that the left does, they do stand for whatever, whatever's in vogue, you know, they uh, align forces. We need to, and if we have a policy or a platform that we've agreed upon, stand for it. You know, fight for it. Well, that's been their their tactic has been to stay away from that debate and those compromises. And they say, well, we'll just let the little people do that. But really what their strategy has been is we're going to it's a negotiation tactic is what it is. Let's wait for them to negotiate. They will come out and they will come up with a compromise. Now, keep in mind, if the party platform was just decided by the three of us, that any of the party platforms would be much further to the right than any of the current existing platforms that are out there. But what do we do? We do, we honestly engage in a big tent mentality on, on the basis uh, of unity. We try to embrace our brothers that uh, maybe see it just a little bit differently. Um, our brothers and sisters. And, and then we, what do we do? We compromise, we come together with a platform, but what the mainstream side has done under uh, 
some of the mainstream leaders have passed that have now passed on is they said, no, 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 let them go do that. Then when they come out with their final product that has already been pulled to the left a little bit or, or to a greater degree, then we will enter in and we'll say, well, now we need you to accept this candidate that is even further left of that, but you guys can't be rigid to your thing. It's a, it's a the negotiation tactic. And of course we saw it laid bare uh, back in 2012 when Rob McKenna basically blamed conservative Republicans for his loss. Never mind that he was the first uh, candidate in decades, scores of years that actually out fundraised his Democrat opponent. And he lost, he choked and he choked mm-hmm. because he gave up the base on very, very core issues. He didn't want to, I mean, he, he started down this path of saying, well, I'm going to be against Obamacare, then decided to be for it after he lost in the Supreme Court. And I go, well, wait a second, man. If you believed in it, you should still believe in it. It should have been a constitutional matter to you, not a political motive. And then he threw that under the bus. And of course, he threw pro-life people under the bus. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we saw the same thing with Bill Bryant. Marty, to be honest, I think that your race for lieutenant governor uh, back in the day, really scared the the bejeebies out of those guys because it showed that the base wanted a conservative. And now what has happened? Culp came through and he cleaned the clocks of all the establishment people out there. Yep. And, uh, and then, of course, um, the establishment did another dirty deed. Look at what they did to Josh Freed. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they basically took him up to the altar and as they were about to marry him, said, no, thanks, sit back down in the pew. And before he'd even had a chance to leave the, part, leave the church, they brought up Garcia uh, and tried to run somebody else because Josh Freed was too conservative for him. And mm-hmm. that, so they're, they're laid bare. They don't want to compromise. They're the ones that are completely rigid. And we have to be very succinct in how we define that they're the ones that are not ri- or being rigid. And uh, because otherwise they're going to, they're the ones tearing us apart. And what Jamie Herrera Butler is doing now to continue a fight against a president that's already out of office is only seeking to divide us. And that's a problem. They're the ones starting to fight. So we have a, obviously a fight with our, a good friend of yours as well, Brad Clipper over there uh, going against uh, Dan Newhouse. So I'm, I'm excited about that. A conservative area, Eastern yep. Washington. I think Brad's got a great shot of taking him out, which is I think perfect. And hopefully his seat will be safe because it is a conservative district. But uh, we need to do the same thing down with Jamie. I mean, and we really do. Who are we? And band together. Yeah. Well, if you don't check her, it's like raising a kid that uh, constantly, you know, steals from his brothers and sisters and he never disciplined them for it. Mm-hmm. They just believe that that's the right court of, a- court of action. And they can get away with it. And what Jamie Herrera Butler is doing to conservatives that voted for her, to conservatives that donated to her, what she is doing is an utter betrayal, but more importantly, she's betraying her oath to office. And God forbid that she is ever prosecuted without the due process that she stole from Donald Trump. Well, the sowing and reaping thing does kind of come into play here. But um, now let's talk about anything that uh, you would like to see. Okay, so, uh, you know, before we get into this, maybe on any individual bills or anything, um, this idea of, of, of the, the session itself being illegal, we have a real problem with that because we have a we have a corrupt court system in Washington State, right? I mean, what, so what's the chance? I mean, you got nine nine zero um, Supreme Court decision that we didn't know what thirty dollar car tabs meant. Well, you know the nice thing about politics is sometimes you can arrange a scenario where 
your opponents get to beat each other up. And in this case, uh, there will be winners and losers out of this session on the left. And um, those, those, those ones, the perceived losers on the left, then become allies with regard to those of us on the right that want to potentially challenge the legality of the, um, of the, of the session that I believe is unconstitutionally being conducted right now and therefore not legitimate. And if that is the case, uh, those people tend to have uh, uh, greater access to some of those uh, legal minds that you were just uh, discussing um, and mentioning than those on the right. So uh, the coalition would actually be bigger uh, for uh, the argument against than it would be for. Very much appreciate your optimism on that. Thank you. That's awesome. And I, you know, and I want to be optimistic too, because I know who's on the throne and, you know, but we've got a, uh, you know, we've got a, uh, um, you know, a situation in Washington state that needs to be corrected. And um, so thank goodness you're there fighting every day. So uh, bills, any, anything that you're seeing coming down that you, you know, I, I think I just saw a poll uh, uh, a day or so ago that said 58% of Washingtonians are opposed to increasing gas taxes <laughs> uh, for some strange reason. That's probably the car owning pickup owning Washingtonians. Would you agree or new no. uh, no, people that ride the bus? That's probably <laughs> some of those, uh, all those King County uh, people like you that have to uh, pay that sound transit reg- vehicle registration fee are probably included in there too. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think your budgets are kind of tapped clean as it is. Look, I, I look if they if they are dumb enough to pass a gas tax, then they they're they're giving us uh, the best chance we'll have in decades to take back the gavel. Um, and for your listeners, that means being the majority on either in either body. The truth is, the state's in a pickle. That particular topic is is hard for them because typically when they pass a gas tax. They, they've usually done it about every 10 years. And what it what accompanies the gas tax, which you don't hear about in the press, is a bond bill. Because what they'll do is they'll pass the gas tax and say, we're going to raise it by 10 cents. And then what they'll do is they'll come back with a financial construct, this bond bill, that will say, uh, you know what we're going to do? That 10 cent gas tax increase over the next 30 years is going to raise this many millions of dollars. So we're going to, create bonds off of that future revenue and then sell them to the public and get all of our money up front. And then we're going to go fund all of the projects all at once. And the reason why they do that, it's a smart political play in one sense, because people, a gas tax is very transparent. Every few days when you go to, if you're committing a lot, every few days when you go to fill up that gas tank, you see the prices go up and then you start to get agitated and transparent taxes is not what the Democrat party has ever stood for. They want taxes like our, say our income tax that are anti-transparent that you don't see property taxes that they hide through escrow companies that you don't see, but a gas tax is in your face. And so what they want to do is if they're going to pass that, they usually like to get the projects funded and being built ASAP so that when you're, after you're pissed off and you, and you put the, the pump back in the, the, the tank there and, you, and then you drive down the road, you see the construction as a benefit. And then you go, okay, well, maybe it's worth it. But a bond vote is interesting because a bond vote takes two thirds or it takes a 60% majority and they don't have 60%. So they need Republicans to get it passed. And if the Republicans 
stand firm and every Republican chooses to not throw their constituents under the bus, then they can't get that bond bill, bill, which means that if they want the gas tax, they have to get the gas tax alone and they can only start spending on projects as the money comes in, which means that people will see the gas tax hike, get pissed at the gas tax hike. And over the next two years, they're not going to see a damn project being funded. And hopefully they're going to vote out the people that voted for that gas tax hike. So that, that would be a colossal blunder if they do it. Um, the only way that they get out of that with any type of salvageability is if Republicans break ranks. And as long as we don't, um, we should be fine. I would also note the last gas tax increase was less than 10 years ago. It was only five years ago in 2015. And there were Republicans that broke rank. And just to be nice, I won't name those Republicans. Um, but I will, I will mention this. Of all the Republicans that broke rank, only two are left. So their own, their own constituents said, hey, we don't like you no more. Yep. So on that note, yeah. on the national level, they're looking at reparations bill, looking at oh. HR one, which is about nationalizing the election and making it so that they can keep on doing, as Doug said, cheating. Anything like that, the local level, the state level that that people need to know about that. HB ten sixty eight, right? Isn't that the take take the elections out of the public disclosure? Yeah, thing, protect them. I look look if those are those are all heinous bills. But they have got it wrong. It's like the it's, it's almost like it's an eschatological type of type of point. And for your audience that knows what that means, great. But it's like the spirit of the Lord is coming down and giving these guys um, uh, clouding their understanding. I cannot believe that they're willing to shoot themselves in the foot with some of these bills. The country will not support reparations. Mm-hmm. If you want to start start talking about reparations then why don't you talk to me about my family's poverty as a result of my, my patronage dying to free slaves and then my family being forced into poverty because all the males in my lineage died trying to free slaves. And you tell, and you're telling me I still owe you when, when my family died to free, when my family served. I mean, and on top of that, you want to, you want to, so what do you want to do? You want to, you want to somehow penalize other people. I mean, that's, that's a landmine field uh, waiting to happen for them if they go down that route. And it's, it's done around people who are emotional um, without uh, any consideration for the other side. And uh, look, we can all get emotional, but when you're a legislator, you're called to go down there, take a chill pill, go take a walk around the Capitol, you know, do what you got to do and then say, okay, let's, let's really talk about this and really consider the long-term impact. That bill's bad at the national level. This public records request will not sell well. If they take away any transparency around being able to go in and uh, look at how elections are done, they will not be rewarded well. I don't know that the speaker is that naive or, or dumb to pass that bill, but if they do, I think there'll be grave, grave consequences uh, for that. So I, I hope that that won't pass. It's, you know, kind of one of those double-edged swords. It's like, I mean, I, you know, kind of hope they're that stupid, but I really don't want them to be, you know? And, um, and to Doug's point about the, uh, the guy serving in the OSPI office that pushed down that comprehensive sex education last year. And then of course the referendum that failed to get enough. No, Chris Reichtal. That that's the one. Okay. Um, uh, have they been emboldened by that? Is there more stuff to, uh, for our parents to watch out for, or is it they laying low for now on that? Well, you know, it, it's kind of gone out of the limelight because no, none of the kids are in school, right? Right. Yeah. And 
I think that's a bigger issue that's going to hurt him in the future. I mean, he clearly has political aspirations above that. He may not be running for that seat in the future. He might be running for something else. Um, I used to work with him in the house. He's a smart guy. He knows what he did. He, he was he was on the Todd Ehrman show saying, oops, I should have made it an opt-in instead of an opt-out type of scenario. Um, but the more people start to see this gra- this gross curriculum, the more they're going to start to do. But, you know, I'm kind of, you know, well, I, I was hopeful if Trump had another four years, we were going to see school choice really implemented at the federal level, which would have, you know, really helped out with that because we could have opted our kids out into a different school. But um, I think that, that bill, they're going to they're gonna take their time. They're going to wait a couple of years before they really start introducing. They already did that, right? They've already moved back implementation parts of it. Mm-hmm. So in that aspect, they're going to they're gonna try to lull us back to sleep. And if we fall back asleep, then that's our own damn fault. So if you're listening tonight, don't fall asleep on that and keep highlighting that to your neighbors and to your, your family and church uh, members and everybody else to let them know how heinous that is with what they're doing. Um, but I don't know that that's going to be the number one issue, Marty. I really think that uh, the way that the, the unions are belligerently attacking parents and students mm-hmm. using COVID as an excuse to not do their job while still demanding they get not only pay, but pay increases is a real problem that I think is going to come to a head sooner. I, without getting you in trouble as well, um, but we've talked about this on the show before. The teachers unions, like the strongest public sector union in the state. They have a lot yeah. of political sway. And so that's many of the reasons why our kids aren't back in school has to do with the teachers unions. You know, how, how do you as parents, you know, go school boards, we understand that and getting people elected like yourself, but this is something we, we have to be aware of that the battle really starts there. Well, you know, it used to be, I think a lot of people had this suspicion at the end of the day that unions were for the worker and they weren't ideologically and they weren't, they were, they were always for the worker first before they got into their political ideology. And we're starting to see where that is breaking down. You certainly on the police side, first responder side, you're starting to see that, yeah, they're for the worker first. Uh, 90% of the unions are standing against this defund police crap. Unfortunately, the teachers are seeing something awesome. We know that there are a lot of teachers out there that are conservative, that are forced mm-hmm. to pay union dues. They're forced to into silence uh, lest their, their career is threatened uh, if they were to stand up and speak against the ideology. But now what you have is you have a teacher's union that is pushing this ideology above just being there for the common worker. And if you were to actually go look, it, uh, one of the saddest political mistakes this year was not forcing us into special session before you know, really uh, August, July, really, the, really before July. And if we had, we because what we had been originally negotiated pre-COVID was uh, raises for teachers. Now, the Republicans didn't support that. We, teachers had gotten raises and we'd done a lot of stuff to fix McCleary. Uh, she seems like 10 years ago now we were dealing with McCleary, but it wasn't really that long ago. And um, But what happened was they pushed through pay raises for teachers. Then uh, COVID hits. And the day after, we think we have a working relationship with the governor on this. The day after we close session, the, the, you know, basically the governor starts to lock things down. And one of the things that we needed to do was come back and say, you know what? Uh, teacher raises should not be on the table right now because you're not going to be teaching anyway. And we need to fund unemployment. We need to fund uh, medical response and, and, and health and public health and safety. And those, the, those raises were millions and millions of dollars. Well, what happened? Because we didn't force the governor back in the session, didn't even try to force him in the session, 
as a result, uh, the governor let those pay raises go through. And would you not believe me if I told you that just 30 days after those pay raises, 30 days in a week, you know, so a month and a week, five weeks after those pay raises went into effect at the end of July, the, the Democrat Party had the single largest fundraising day that they've ever had. They raised more money in that in that one day, one week period after those pay raises had not only been kicked in, but then been paid out. What did they do? They found their way back into political donations back to the Democrat Party. They raised more money in that week than the Republican Party and the entire state raised in two years. And then all of us just got deluged with uh, campaign uh, 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 contributions against and all this money. And it clearly was a political play. And so now what are the, what are, what are the teachers or the teachers union want response? Well, they want complete fealty of the Democrat party that they just gave all those millions of dollars for everything I said, you can go verify. That's, that's all verifiable on public record right now. You can go check it out. And it's, it's just sad um, that they literally bought the election with union dues that they got for pay, pay raises that were given to teachers that don't have to do their job. Wow. This is why we need people on the inside serving and fighting so people know. I mean, it may upset people that are listening, but you should be. Yeah, this, this is why the system needs to be uh, held in check by those that say, no, this is not right. There is a right and wrong, and that is wrong. Uh, this A one group shouldn't have that much political sway that it aren't even elected or representing you. And so uh, thank you for uh, kind of illuminating that to us, Jesse. I appreciate so, uh, it. Jesse, I have a question. Um, when a constituent contacts you via email, uh, what happens? Does that affect the way you think or how you're representing the district? You know, the sarcastic part of me wanted to give you a sarcastic answer. Then I realized that my next opponent might try to use that against me and say that I really meant it what I said, but <laughs> so, just give me a second while I... Get, get to a real why you calm yourself <laughs> calm yourself back yeah, down there i know i know that my i know that a lot of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle don't give a crap about constituents that contact them clearly they don't but okay so doug you you asked me when a constituent contacts well me okay me. so i i i sent i i've sent several emails to uh deborah entman mona doss and pat sullivan <laughs> the only one so I'm in the 47th district. Those are my representatives. Mm -hmm. The only one who will always email me back is Pat Sullivan. Okay. I've not heard a breath, a sound from the other ones. So I'm usually pushing a conservative point of view, like transparency well, in elections and don't raise my gas tax, that kind of thing. Okay. So let me, uh, I'll speak to it broadly and then I'll speak to it specifically, maybe how I deal with it. I, I won't just throw rep Entman and, uh, uh, Mona Doss. Mona Doss under the bus uh, just yet. So first off, uh, Representative Sullivan is the majority leader. And so he's got more staff access and other things. He's been around longer. Um, the way the legislature funds our staff is not the way that they do it in Congress. We don't necessarily get to pick our full staff and you, and they don't pay enough for our staff to really do that job well. We get one staffer in the house and that one staffer basically uh, reports to the clerk's office. And if the, you know, if that staffer and, and, and if that staffer is either a uh, not as skilled as you want um, or B doesn't want to do certain things, then, and they could go run to the clerk's office and say, well, I, I don't have the skill to do that. 
and more importantly, in my estimation, from a corporate background uh, in consulting and in corporate America, whether it's finance, healthcare, or uh, heck, aerospace or technology, um, I would estimate that the staff that we need to do that job, one staffer per office, if you want to limit it to just that, would need to be about an eighty to ninety thousand dollar a year paid job with benefits. But what they do is they force us in to hire a staffer. And if these, unless we're hiring inside staffers that have been in local governance for a long time, uh, they start them out at like 40,000. How am I supposed to hire a staffer that has any type of skill to really understand how to handle all of these, th this volume of email? Uh, so there's a, there's a problem. So Re Representative Entman and Mona Doss are relatively new. And if they haven't figured out that working relationship with their staff, uh, with how to deal with either the secretary of Senate or the, uh, the clerk's office, or, and if they've got staffers that maybe they, one of the routes that I've taken, I've taken a couple different routes, but uh, one of the routes that I took was to, uh, you know, try to find that young kid that's a, a diamond in the rough, but if they don't pan out, then you got to move on. Or if you go with a, a long time uh, person there, that's got all the state seniority, then they don't, they kind of run, they run your shop and, and I don't want someone running my shop. They weren't elected. I was. So for example, uh, a lot of the old time staffers that they want to give you there don't want to move in district when you're out of session. And that was always a showstopper for me. I want you in district because I want my district citizens or rep, uh, uh, constituents to be able to come. I don't want to force them to drive 45 minutes down to the Capitol just to have to meet with me when I'm already in district. Let's do it. So you've got those dynamics that they got. So in one sense, I'll give them a little bit of pass. Uh, number two, um, when you understand how that's done. Do they get the, I just want to know, did they get the stinking email or not? Am I being, well, I, I, I mean, I'm getting a, I'm getting an actual response from Mr. Sullivan on the issue that I, you know, so it's obviously because he's saying, Hey, Doug, this is what happened. I will cons now he never says I'm with you. He says, I'll consider it when I vote, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, he's well, not going to vote for you, but, but at least he's responding. Uh, do these emails make a difference to the legislator? Uh, is it, is it worth our time to yes. contact them? Yes, but you got to have a game within a game. So rather than hypothesizing how Sullivan is responding to that, whether he's actually responding to it or his staff is responding on his behalf, I'll tell you what I do. When we get, we get volumes of emails every day. I mean, earlier today I was talking, uh, well, last night I was talking with a school board member um, who had, who had had uh, one of their staffers in the school district send me an email and I got to tell you, it took me about five minutes to find the email, five minutes. And I'm a tech guy because I had so many emails. I was like, okay. And even searching on it sometimes doesn't pull it up right. And of course I'm not in the capital. So I'm not in the network. I got to dial in. I got blah, blah, blah. But here's my point. We get so many emails that I came up with a rule right away in my office that says, if you spam me, I don't respond. I don't care if you're a constituent. I don't care if you're a non-constituent. I don't even look to see if you send me spam, I don't respond to spam, period. And so we just whitewash those out, number one. And what I mean by that is that could come from- Like a forum email. A forum email, yeah. You okay. go on some website- got about one minute left in the show, so- Okay, well, so I don't respond to spam. I then try to divide up constituents uh, versus non-constituents. And constituents then get responses from me and my staff. And then we work on that um, every day. I- I try to have staff purview a lot of the emails and then I give them the responses that should go to that. Um, but 
oftentimes there, there are sometimes, especially when I'm doing budget negotiations, I just tell my staff, look, I'm not going to do email for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll just let it queue up and then get back to it because I'm doing a job and I got to get the budget done. Yeah. So those all considerations all come into play. So are you, I, what I'm saying is, is it effective for people to email their, oh, their representative? Yes. If you don't do, if you don't do spam and you send legitimate email, I don't care if you've got an eighth grade education or a PhD. What, what does matter to me is if I start seeing volume on a topic. Yeah. And if I start to believe and if the emails start to make me believe that my constituency wants a certain action that shows up on my radar and it's effective. Well, great. So, uh, encourage our listeners email. They do matter. Don't do spam. Representative Jesse Young has been our guest today. Thank you so much for being on the program. This is Doug Bassler. And Marty McClendon, Doug and Marty versus the world.